Welcome back to Passing Judgment. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are going to talk all things debate, specifically presidential debates, vice presidential debates, and we are here with America's debate coach. Dr. Todd Graham is the director of debate at Southern Illinois University. His debate teams have won five national championships, and he's been recognized three times as a National Debate Coach of the Year. You've probably seen him all over TV and heard him on the radio. He contributes op-eds to CNN.com and frequently appears on that station and others. Todd, thank you for coming on and passing judgment with us. Thank you, Jessica. This is the first time I've gotten to speak with someone from Loyola without losing my temper. You all have a really good debate program. And so we were very competitive with Loyola for a long time. And those kids were bright and sharp. And it was usually us versus them in a semifinal or final round. So it's happy to talk to you. And we have you actually for two different episodes. We're going, I'm so grateful. We're going to have this episode where we preview what to look for. And then the next time we're going to recap everything we saw. And I hope in a, I hope there's just enough for some good humor because I know these debates are so high stakes. So first question, are debates actually a good way to pick the leader of the free world? I mean, it sounds a little ridiculous, but why not have them submit essays? Why do we put them on stage and have them engage in this type of behavior? Well, if they submitted essays, then it would always end up looking like the worst parts of Chops, yes. <laughs> or uh, you know that the one the parts that were, were the uh, when, you know when you're watching the uh, entrepreneur show on TV, the Shark Tank. Those are the the parts where they're always giving their their like life history and why they should be on the show. Those are the parts that I fast forward through. So that's why I don't want to ever have an essay about it because then I I have to start you know reading about the, their their history and their crying, etc. But it's a fair question, Jessica. My answer to that um, when people say that. Usually the question is framed in a different way. So I liked how you framed it because it's usually framed it, uh, you know, uh, these debates aren't very good. They don't like the format. It's not real debate. And, and Jessica, I've coached every form of debate that exists uh, from a policy debate to American parliamentary style debate to Lincoln-Douglas debate uh, to now it's called British, uh, British parliamentary style debate. And then, of course, I've watched political debates. They all have their problems. There's not a single form of debate that I can say this one is for sure better than this other one. So when people complain about the formats or how they look or that they're not getting the job done, we're not learning a lot from presidential debates, what I want to tell them is, why don't you come watch another Lincoln-Douglas high school debater with me? Because I'm going to stick needles in my eyes if I have to do that again. So every format has something positive and something negative. And so what I try to frame people to do is instead of saying, what's, what's wrong with these debates and why aren't they helpful, is I ask them the simple question, which is, what's the alternative? If we don't have presidential debates, obviously their alternative is always to try to improve them, and I can help in that in some ways, but but if we don't have debates, then it's all Facebook ads and Twitter ads and, and, and stump speeches, and those are inherently worse than the debates. So yes, I do still think debates are a great way to pick a president. I mean, they've been around for a couple thousand years for a reason. It's because debates are a truth-seeking form, and while that's being tested right now, it's still still the best way to get to the truth. It's put two candidates on the stage, have a moderator who knows what she or he is doing, and then try to find out the real heart of the issue. What makes a good debater? Is it similar to what makes a good president? 
Sometimes, but not necessarily. I think good debaters, uh, you know, it, there's two parts of a good debater. I think a good debater has to be able to, like, uh, you know, have good critical thinking skills. And so you would hope that your president has that. Um, some debaters, I think, are quicker thinkers than others. And this has come up a lot lately because, for example, people are talking about how Joe Biden has lost a step. And it's true. I've watched him debate for a long, long time. He's lost a step. But that doesn't mean it's it's a step in his intelligence. It means he's just not as quick as thinking of the answer as he used to. I don't know if you are, Jessica, but I certainly am too. So, um, you know, I, I lose a little bit of the quickness, but I don't lose the, the inherent ability to reason. And so I think that's part of debate that I like. I've had some debaters that are quick thinkers and some that art is quick, but both were equally intelligent and would win me tournaments and championships. It just depends on how you get there. So I do think part of being a good president, you know, would be, I, I've always wanted the presidents to be a, a part of a debate team because you learn both sides of an issue. You learn reasoning, and then you learn how to pick the best argument, which on well, which is on either side. So yeah, I do think that, that presidential candidates, I think it helps everybody to take a beginning debate class. It helps them in their reasoning. And I would hope that it would help someone like a president to be able to see the issue from multiple perspectives. Speaking of the president, the presidential debates, of course, are coming up and everybody is a Twitter, a buzz. Everybody's thinking about it. How important are these pre-debate expectations? And in this particular case, you know, are there different expectations for Trump versus Biden? The first question is that the expectations are massive. Uh, and the reason the, they're massive is just all you got to do is, like you said, go online. And people just can't wait for these presidential debates. Uh, but I also remember four years ago, they just couldn't wait for those presidential debates. And Mark Cuban is one of those typical people because he doesn't know anything about debates. Side story, by the way, one of my protégés who I, I coached and taught debate and he got his PhD under me, uh, then went on and coaches at an all-girls uh, high school in Dallas and, and coaches Mark Cuban's daughter. Mark Cuban's come into his class and videotaped his daughter in debates. So that's kind of a side note. But uh, Mark Cuban thought that Hillary Clinton was just going to wipe the floor with Donald Trump. And so he was so excited about these debates. So there still is an expectation. But afterwards, you noticed he wasn't quite as loud about it. And it's because your expectation in your mind never really meets the expectation that the debate comes through. And that's why people sometimes get disappointed because they think there's going to be things like, you know, knockouts, et cetera. And that just doesn't happen in debates. But yeah, the, the expectations are pretty high for these. So are the expectations different for Trump and in Biden? Yeah, I think they are a little bit. But, um, you know, at this point, we kind of know what Donald Trump's going to do in debates. We, we've seen him in the debates against Clinton and four years ago. We know what his style is. It'll be a bit of abrasive. It'll be a bit of interrupting. It'll be a bit of rudeness. Um, and, and he'll kind of go around about in, in answering it. And in Biden, we also sort of have lower expectations right now. Uh, one of the things that the Trump campaign has been doing wrong for a while is that they've been playing down Joe Biden's intelligence. They've been playing down Joe Biden's ability to speak, his ability to think. They've been calling him senile. All of these things work to Biden's advantage in the debates because it's almost as if they weren't watching Biden in the you know nine presidential primary debates that he had. He was just fine in those. While sometimes I didn't think he was better than he should have been, et cetera. Uh, but his last debate against Bernie Sanders is good proof that he's he's a fine debater. So the expectations I think that that some people are setting are too low for Biden. On the other hand, 
if you read my 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 emails I'm getting, all of the Biden supporters think he's absolutely going to wipe the, the floor with Trump, which means their expectations right. are too high. I think both sides are that way. So you just described President Trump's uh, future debate performance. I think exactly accurately you use the words abrasive and rude. In terms of b- debate performance, if that's our expectation, is there a catastrophic moment that he can have? Is there because if we already expect that he's going to be rude, that he's going to be abrasive, is there something that he could do in the debate that you think you would get on TV the next day and say that was a terrifically hideous debate performance? Yeah, the only way Trump does that is if he if he uses some of the language that he uses in private, right? You and I have both read a lot of the things like from the Atlantic, et cetera, that he says in in private. So uh, if he were actually to use that some of the language that he uses in private in public, and I don't mean the cursing, I mean what he really right. thinks of other countries from Africa or et cetera, you know, or his generals, et cetera. So if he's disrespectful toward the military in some way, but I, I just don't, you know, and that's possible, right? We all make flubs like that, and so if his everyday language came out of what he really thinks of people, right? He did that in some of the previous debates, but it was against people that the public didn't get so mad because it was a Rosie O'Donnell comment or something like that. And and while they should have been, so no, I don't see Donald Trump making that mistake. So then the question is, can can Joe Biden do yeah. something that really throws right. him off his game? And, and that again is people living in their fantasy heads. People always think, I've had so many emails, Jessica, why don't you, why didn't you just tell Joe Biden that he should say this because that would shut Trump up. And what I want to say is no, Donald Trump has been, you know, he's been arguing with people his whole life, maybe not in official debates, but there's no real thing you can do that might shut him up. It's why when I wrote for CNN, I had my two best suggestions, which were to, I think my very best one, frankly, is to use humor against him, right? To sort of make fun of things that he's said or done, but not make fun of him as a person. Don't make fun of his looks or anything like that, because he's more accustomed to that and he'll throw that right back at you, but make fun of his quotes and things he said. And my other big tip was to to use his own words against him. That's never happened in a debate. And frankly, the people around Trump have never done that. If you used his own words against him, because there's always a tweet for that, uh, then I think that you could probably throw him off his game a little bit. That's interesting. You're right. I have not actually heard that except in press conferences, like, Mr. President, didn't you say? And then he just kind of walks out of the room. But in this case, I don't think there's that option. In if I was, co- yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, you're right, Jessica. I'm sorry to interrupt, but if I was coaching Joe Biden, I would have had him memorize at least a dozen or two dozen of Trump's tr- tweets or comments previously that are in direct opposition to his policies or ideas of today. And I would just have him throw them out one after another during the debate because Trump can't insult you back when your insult is coming from him. So interesting. I have not heard that before, and I think it makes all the sense in the world. And we talked about this a little bit, but similar question for Biden. I mean, is other than playing into the narrative that is used the word, you know, senile, that he basically, you know, forgets his middle name, forgets where they are. Can he have a catastrophic moment that just creates a crater in the polling? 
I don't know if it would create a crater because at, at this point, what happens in, in presidential debates, Jessica, is primaries make a, a little bit bigger difference than the general election debate. The general election debate will also make a difference. But we've seen people in primaries have that bad moment and then they completely lose. And the reason is, is because in a primary, Rick Perry can stand up and forget the three departments, especially the Department of Energy, which is the one that he forgot, uh, that he says, I have three departments I'm going to eliminate in a Republican primary debate. He says the first one, he right. says the third one, and then he just stands there. And finally, Jessica, he just goes, oops. Yep. And ironically, it's the one he ended up being secretary of. It was, uh, it was the Department of Energy. But the reason that hurt him is because there were nine other Republicans on stage that people who did like Perry could go, oh, well, okay, I'll go with that guy instead, or I'll go with that woman instead. In a general election debate, it's only Republican versus Democrat. So it's much harder to get people off of their preferred candidate. Once they've already picked one, they've picked one. Uh, I, I think her name is Brewer, the former uh, governor of, of Arizona. Yeah. When she had one of those moments in a debate, she literally had a 30-second moment where she couldn't think of anything, and she just stood there and said nothing and kind of smiled sheepishly. But she still won because it wasn't against other Republicans. She was debating against the Democrat, and it was a terrible moment, but it didn't lose her any Republican support. So can Joe Biden lose some? Yeah, he could. He could do that angry thing that he does too much, um, and he could turn some people off. But no, it won't be a big blow that get Democrats not to vote against him. It'll just be those sort of people in the middle, the undecideds, the people who thought, I, you know, I voted for Trump, but I might vote for Biden this time. But then if they just don't like him at all in the debate, then they choose maybe not to vote at all. Which is, of course, the voters because of the Electoral College that we actually, unfortunately, care about the most. Uh, the swing voters in the swing states, those who might not show up at all or those who are undecided, though, as a side note, I really don't understand who would be undecided in this particular uh, race. The two candidates do seem to have very different perspectives on the world. Let's pivot a little bit to the vice presidential debate. And I've been thinking a lot about this because I really want your take on what Kamala Harris has to do, because it seems to me that she has this really fine line to walk, one, as a woman, two, as a prosecutor, and she wants to look in command. She wants to look, for lack of a better word, prosecutorial, but not too aggressive. And I remember people really thought Tim Kaine was going to wipe the stage with Pence uh, four years ago. And that's, from my perspective, not what happens. So what should we be looking for? Does Harris have a needle to thread here? Okay, we'll start with the basics of debate. Unfortunately, no, this is the basics of society. Women always have a needle to thread, uh, and, and that even that, that analogy works even worse now, but um, it's because they get judged by a double standard in debates. I've had plenty of great women debate for me, and I've also seen them on the national debate circuit and in television. If a woman is too assertive in a debate, they come across as aggressive. There are worse words to use. I won't use them today. But if a woman is not assertive enough, then they end up being a doormat. They have a hard harder job to win a debate 
than does a man. And I know this based on experience, both of being a judge of women and men who have debated, but mostly being a coach of ex excellent women, because you have to find that right tone, you have to find the right assertiveness without seeming aggressive, etc. So you're absolutely right. She has to thread the needle on this one. Uh, so, but, but do you know, have you watched these primary debates with her? Uh, then the, the, did you get any like feedback of what people thought of watching her in the primary debates? So I'm going to give a really unsatisfying answer, which is I think people who are predisposed to support her said, God, she did a great job. And then people who didn't really know uh, or people who already had a candidate that they liked just thought, oh, that was kind of middling and they were unimpressed. Here's what I found out, because, you know, I'm not from California. So, uh, you know, I, when we had all of those Democrats debating on stage, the first piece that I wrote, I always write a piece for CNN, you know, analyzing the debates every morning. I've done this for 12 years. Uh, uh, my editor had to send me back a note and said, Todd, I think you have the guys confused because I literally wrote a whole paragraph and gave a grade to Jay Inslee when it was actually Mike H or H when it was actually yeah. Hickenlooper. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know these people. I, I, you know, I live in Southern Illinois. I've never seen any of these people before in my life. And so, yeah, I kind of knew who Kamala Harris was, but I'd never heard her speak. Right. And I do that on purpose because I want to judge the debate based on the debate itself, not something I knew before or after. So while I study the issues, I don't study the candidates. Um, and I find that that's the very best way to judge them. Here's what I thought about Kamala Harris. I thought she had a wonderful, what I call when I teach my public speaking, speaking classes, a wonderful conversational hmm. quality. When she talked, she was very laid back. I liked her conversational quality. But here's what I found out from other people who don't maybe teach public speaking. I had so many people say to me, Todd, was she high? Really? On more than one occasion, uh, the people in the Midwest, people who haven't heard her, thought that she she might just be like, she she had maybe, you know, smoked a little cuss before the debate <laughs> to like calm herself down. And so... The, and, and I'm not kidding you, multiple people thought that. And I explained it in how I always do, which is actually my impression was the opposite. It was that she tried to be more conversational yes. in nature and in tone. And I appreciated that. The problem is a lot of people thought it was too underdone, like it was so laid back. And so again, that's a fine line because if she leaves that laid back sort of conversational tone, then it starts to sound aggressive or assertive. And if you don't think Mike Pence is going to be able to act, oh, I'm offended by this woman yelling at me. Uh, yeah, he's going to play that card right away. Uh, I, you know, I've always said, I don't know if you remember the Joe Biden debate against uh, Sarah Palin. Yes, I do. I think that's the best debate he's ever had. And the reason for that is because he had to walk the fine line without making her, without basically calling her stupid or ignorant. And so he had to show that he knew more than her without doing that. And so, and, and, and he did a really nice job in that debate of making sure not to offend anybody. But I think if Kamala Harris decides to come after Mike Pence, I think that a lot of people will take that the wrong way because of the terrible stereotypes we have about aggression and women in our society. That's so interesting about Kamala Harris because being from California, I've really heard her speak so many times. She was our attorney general. I was even aware of her when she was the district attorney in San Francisco. And for me, that's just her cadence. And she does have to, you know, it's so, I will say this as a female attorney and just to reiterate what you said, it's hard because you 
obviously you don't want to undercut your own intelligence and you don't want to sound unprepared, but you really have to be careful not to sound, you know, too aggressive or too scary or too shrill or fill in, you know, whatever term we use. And, um, I think that she's, it will be fascinating to watch her in the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings uh, with respect to the new Supreme Court nominee. And because I think that will be, right. uh, it's not a debate, but it will be a different form for her. And so you just touched on the next question, which is how does Pence react to Harris? Because I also think it's a bad look for him if it looks like he's either screaming at her, which I don't think is his personality or debate personality at all, or if it looks like he's, you know, just kind of patting her on the head, like, oh, that's so adorable. Thank you for sharing that. I think he also has to be a little bit careful with respect to the optics. Here's the thing about Mike Pence. He has a built-in advantage in this debate against Kamala Harris because of his speaking style and personality. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why people didn't think perhaps Tim Kaine won that debate. I I thought he did win the debate, but we'll talk about that in a second. But one of the reasons why is because he was constantly interrupting Mike Pence all the time, but Pence was calm and relaxed and just went through the whole debate. That's his style. So I don't think he's going to be angry or yelling at Kamala. So the one thing that I always have to coach my male debaters, I always remind them, last thing I say before they go in the round, I'm like, remember, you're debating women because they know what that means. We've talked about it enough. That means, you you know, don't talk down to them and the other, which is don't be too aggressive at them because it comes across bad. So I think Mike Pence won't have any problem with the calmness. I don't ever see him in this debate getting angry at Kamala Harris. He didn't get angry at, at Tim Kaine, who interrupted him all the time. So he's got that part down. It's the condescending thing that we might see a little bit, right? Um, I'm still not sure we would see much of that. Pence has this because he used to have a radio show. Right. So right. he's just kind of got a way, he's got a kind of way about him of speaking. That, that kind of will just kind of slide through one thing and slide through another. So I don't really think, uh, and this seems weird for me, but I don't think he's going to have trouble in either direction. I think he's going to play it right down the middle. Now, that's not the content of his answers, but that's the style. And I think his style will lend itself just fine to debating Kamala Harris. It's funny because you said people asked if Kamala Harris had taken something before the debate. For me, Mike Pence is almost like, you know, human volume. He's just always going to keep that same calm cadence and you can't really get him off of that. And he's just going to kind of very calmly deny reality. And I think put as a result, put in a pretty solid performance. Yeah. I mean, I mean, who, who can, who can act that well? He's been standing behind Trump for four years and then walks to the podium and saying, you know, that president's been doing a great job on, and then whatever the hell it was that Trump was just talking about that made no sense at all. So yeah, Pence has this down to a science at this point. He's just, he's just very straightforward in it. Um, yeah, I, I, I think so. Here's what I would do if I were Kamala. Um, and, and here's what she needs to do. If you, if she wants to win this debate, she needs to have a criteria set up that, these are going to be my talking points. And she could do no better than to go back 
to my article I wrote four years ago on CNN, how, and that's how I judged the vice presidential debate. It basically it boiled down to three things, and I'll probably pull a Rick Perry and forget one of them now. But uh, it was, um, I want one of those categories to be, are you ready to be president? Right. And so she needs to prove that she's ready to be president. And, and, and Pence, I think, being vice president can do that. So they'll probably both do OK on that. She's a standing United States senator. He's vice president. That should be OK. But the other two categories are how well do you defend your president and how well can you attack the other candidates? president. So in other words, will Pence be able to attack Biden very well? Probably, maybe a little bit, but I think she has an advantage because she can attack Donald Trump. But here's where she should really focus on. Make Mike Pence defend Donald Mm -hmm. Trump in a debate. If you can do that in a debate, he couldn't do it four years ago before Trump had instituted any of his policies. And so if she can keep that as her focus, which is you need to defend your president in this debate, I think she'll be just fine. Because if she can turn the debate into, let's debate about my guy versus your guy at the top of the ticket, she wins that debate every time. I certainly hope that they are listening because you're right. Four years ago, there was no record to tie Pence to. It was just statements on the campaign trail, which is very different from you have stood next to or behind the president of the United States when let's and then let's go down the list. And he can't pretend like he wasn't there. So I do hope that they're and I suspect they are reading your pieces. Now, how has social media changed? presidential debates. It seems from an outsider's perspective that the candidates are always kind of looking for that 17-second soundbite that everybody's going to be able to not watch the debate, but sound like they watch the debate and then, you know, text or Facebook or tweet out to all of their friends. Am I missing it? Has social media caused a big change? Uh, yes, they've caused a big change, but I'm not sure, Jessica, that I would say that's it. Remember, we've had those one-liners because they've always been clips for the evening news, right? There he goes again with Ronald Reagan. There he goes again. Or where's the beef, right? We've always had those. You are correct in thinking that they overdo them a lot um, because they do. But for more, I think social media problem is you don't now anymore win the debate during the debate. You win the debate after the debate. So they go to the spin room. They still talk to them on television. It's why me, when I judge the debate, I turn it on literally on my television when the debate starts. And then as soon as the debate's over, I turn off the television. I don't open up any internet application. And I just write my piece. Because so many people are judging the debate immediately and saying, well, when you said this, what about this? So literally the candidate walks from on stage over to off stage, and then they re-explain the argument they just made. Well, what the hell is that? That's not the debate. That's just another press conference. And so that's where social media comes into play is because people are now already talking in the, about the debate halfway through it, and they're already getting lots of hits and likes for something. And then as soon as the debate's over, both candidates, as well as during the debate, both candidates are tweeting out stuff that's happening and then re-explaining it or reinterpreting it. And yeah, so the, all of those things, I think, are, are bad for me. It's so interesting because I went to my first debate, uh, it feels like 100,000 years ago, but it was December 19th. It was at the university I teach at, Loyola Marymount, and um, it was a primary debate. But I saw exactly 
that phenomenon happened, I sat in the hall and then there was one feeling. I frankly thought Amy Klobuchar had a fantastic night that night. And then in the spin room, it just changed so quickly. And it was like the almost in that case, it was like the pitch about the debate. You know, let me sell you on the fact that even though I tanked on stage, really, it was absolutely fantastic. And it was so interesting to watch the narrative change that quickly. And frankly, for I think a lot of people to buy it. So you've already given a lot of great advice. And if we could do kind of a lightning round, one piece of advice that you haven't already shared with us for all of the for candidates. So for President Trump, what's the best thing he can possibly do on the debate stage? Probably keep his humor going. Uh, You know, I didn't get to talk about it much yet, uh, but uh, humor is what gets his base going. It's what keeps his base going. Uh, Jessica, you probably don't know this about me, but I've studied humor all the way through my PhD. Dissertation was about humor. My master's in in persuasion, my, you know, my thesis was about humor. Uh, And Trump's humor is what gets his base. It's what keeps his base in line. It's what makes them like him so much, no matter what kind of humor, whether it's mean toward the other candidate or not, it bonds that group together. There's a bonding function that humor has. And so my, my one advice for Trump is to, you know, try to still say a, a few things that are funny. It's why I, I thought that Biden should try that too. I could give Trump other advice, but he wouldn't listen to it. So this would be the one thing that I, I would say to do. So I don't think of President yeah. Trump as funny. And this is, of course, my bias. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican, but I'm also not a supporter of the current president for a whole host of reasons that have nothing to do with political ideology. And I see him saying really atrocious things and then kind of doing it with a wink and a nod. And, you know, it's like the little kid who's trying to say, just joking. But I trust you that there's humor there. Can you give the listeners some examples of moments where you thought, yeah, the president was that that was a great example of the president's humor? Sure. Uh, By the way, it goes back to 1651, the Leviathan written by Thomas Hobbes. He came up with a theory of humor called the superiority theory of humor. And what it basically means is there's a lot of things we find funny by finding an infirmity at the other person. So basically, we make fun of other people, and that makes us feel better about ourselves. That is 100% of the humor that Donald Trump uses. It's mean. And so while a neutral observer or someone on the other side might not like it, what it does is it makes him feel better about himself, and it makes his supporters feel better about them. There was a clip that they were going to use today, but didn't, I think, on the Smirconish program, uh, where, uh, if you remember in the debates against Clinton, Hillary Clinton said, well, I'm just glad he's not president. Uh, You know, she finished a statement saying, so I'm just glad he's not president. And he quickly retorted, yeah, because if I was, you'd be in jail. Right? That's an example of something that you would hate, right? That doesn't make any sense by all, by all. Right, you hate that. That's that's not not only does that not make sense, but it's a terrible thing for about democracy to think you'd be in jail. But it played so well with his supporters for two reasons. One, it was still quick thinking. Right, it was a retort that he got right away. It was getting something in, and it played to what he'd been saying, which is Hillary is corrupt. You can't mm-hmm. trust her. Whether or not he was correct, that was his theme in the debate, um, and that was his theme throughout. And so the little quick joke that if he did, you'd be in jail 
got huge laughs from the audience. But a lot of people are like, how dare he online? And that's the stark difference when I talk about in-group humor and out-group humor. The people who don't like Trump will hate his humor even more, but the people who do like him, it keeps them in line and it guarantees their support for a vote. It's got a very powerful effect on those people. You're bringing me back to my uh, freshman year English class where we talked about the theories of humor. So we, we certainly... Uh, are going to have to have a let's let's do a whole episode just on humor and debates. I would love that. Now, Vice President Biden, lightning round for yeah. Biden. Um, for Joe Biden, I really I would the one suggestion to do is on, honestly, um, he oh god, I have so many. Um, if I had to pick one, I know it's the one he's not going to do, but it would be use Trump's quotes and quotes of other Republicans against. Trump, people who have quit, you know, from Trump, et cetera. Um, and so I think by, again, quoting people, it's less likely to let Trump take the offensive in debate. So if Trump tries to, you know, he can't say too much bad if it was someone who worked for him, his secretary of defense who quit, his secretary of state who quit, his national security advisor who quit. So quoting them is different than you stating the opinion or stating it from a different Democrat. But it, but the, the a real big thing, I mean, he's got to stand up to Trump in this debate. Hillary Clinton technically won those debates, but she didn't do anything to motivate the people to go out and vote for her. And that's why I say Joe Biden's got to be big in this debate. He's got to bring the attitude. He's got to control the room. And he has to look like he can stand up to Donald Trump because this debate is more about attitude than about content. I hate to say that because I coach mostly content in debate. Um, as you know, probably a lawyer, 90% of your time is reading and writing. It's not actually spent in court. Right. So Joe Biden needs less content, more attitude in this debate. That would be my big deal. It's so true. It is. It, but and it's extraordinary to me that that is what it comes down to, that Joe Biden can't just get up there and hold up a poster board with all of the quotes and say, I think we're I all done here. I'll, you know, I'll see you for your inauguration. <laughs> but obviously yeah. that's yeah. not what's going to happen. Um I totally, I totally agree. Here's the two things to avoid. Sorry, but um, if he calls Trump a liar, Trump's just going to call him a liar back. And then it's literally going to be the whole debate. Trump is good at thinking of one lie Joe Biden ever told. And then he'll just repeat that same thing every mm -hmm. time Biden calls him a liar. Uh, so the fact checking won't work. I'm sorry we don't have details to go into it now. But oh, God, no, Joe Biden should not fact check him in this debate. That would be one of the worst ideas ever. But it would take me uh, a bit to explain it to you. I hope if he does fact check, when you come back to grade the candidates, I hope then you'll explain why, uh, although I'm sure it will be clear at that point, why it was a disaster. Before we forget, uh, one additional piece of advice in the vice presidential debates for each candidate. Uh, yeah, for Kamala Harris, uh, I, the, definitely my number one would be may, put Pence on the defensive, make him defend Donald Trump. That's it. That would be the strategy for every answer everywhere, because if she does that, Mike Pence is at his weakest when defending his president and why that they should stay in for four years. Uh, for Mike Pence, it's just like, don't lose your cool, which he's fine at, et cetera, but try to find the one or two things from, you know, like pre-economy, right, pre-pandemic, um, and then maybe he can explain better why that you should be, he should be graded on what happened before the pandemic than after. Donald Trump's not very good at that. 
that. But I think Mike Pence could be more articulate as to why we should not use the pandemic as a reason to, you know, grade them on the economy or other subjects like that. Todd, you're so passionate about debates. How did you become interested in this? How did this become your career? Uh, you know, in high school, I was I, I did like drama and debate, and I, I I couldn't get a drama scholarship, but I got a new debate coach. It's funny, you know how the the, the Jeff Goldblum speech from you know I just I just love this kind of chaos theory stuff. But um, the Jeff Goldblum speech of uh, from the, the the butterfly effect sort of thing from the Jurassic Park when you when you drop a pebble at the top of the hill, you know, and it, it it rolls all the way to the bottom. You can do that fifty times in a row; it will never end up in the same place. Well, my junior year of high school, my debate coach left to go to another school. I got a new one. He said, I can get you a scholarship at my old university. And my life was kind of done after that. I'm like, okay, I'll take that scholarship. Went on to get a debate scholarship. Didn't think I would coach it for a living, but I really didn't like being in sales. I did a sales job for one year out. I said, oh man, this real world stuff is terrible. I'm going back into academia. So I, I went back into academia and I found that I'm really quite good at this. And so just been building on it over the years and, and it's become a passion. You know, my parents very much taught into me uh, the sort of hard work. And if you're going to do something, be, you know, try to be good at it. And so I have one thing. I'm very, very good at, and it's debate. And so that's why I've stuck, stuck with it. Well, we learned a lot about debates, and now we're learning a little bit more about you. As loyal listeners of Passing Judgment know, I end the podcast with the same three questions for my guests, just to learn a little bit about you. Uh, here we go. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party, and why? A dinner party, dead or alive? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm going with... It's, I just mentioned Jeff Goldblum because I like him so darn much. I just bought a T-shirt from Hot Topic that's got <laughs> Jeff Goldblum on it. So I'm going with him because it was the nicest compliment I ever got was one day somebody said, you know, I think you look like Jeff Goldblum. Um, and I was so high all day. I was just, that was the nicest thing anybody had ever said. So I, I'm going to go with, I would love to have a dinner with uh, Jeff Goldblum. That's a nice story, but the wrong answer. All right, next, you're going to be stranded <laughs> on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? Oh, it's a chocolate chip cookie. That's not even close. Uh, and I know you're going to say that's not a meal, but uh, yeah, it can be. You just got to do a chocolate chip cookie right. It can be a really big one. If you've ever been to New York, I used to go to the Levain Bakery and get their chocolate chip cookies, and those things are like a pound. So uh, chocolate chip cookie, no doubt. It's the easy answer. Levain, if you're, if you're listening, plug for your store. Last, you get a superpower for an hour. What is it and why? A speed. Uh, Christopher and I, my partner, talk about this a lot because we each have talked about what superpower we want. Um, and I've decided over the course of the last six months, I changed. It used to be a different superpower. But if you're faster than everybody, you you can't ever be harmed by them, nor can you ever lose a fight. Because, you know, it's like a sloth. If you and I were fighting a sloth, we would win because the sloth can't move very fast. So I don't think they play this up in superhero movies exactly correctly. If you have speed, you have the ultimate weapon, even if you're not that strong. Speed, absolutely. We've never met, but I'm not at all convinced that I would beat the sloth. I'm afraid that I would have a psychological breakdown and I would turn to you and say, Todd, I need you to take the sloth. But I appreciate you giving me the benefit of the doubt on that. Yeah, you'd be fine. We'll meet in person one day after the pandemic and you can assess for yourself. Dr. Todd, thank you for passing judgment with us. You can find Todd on Twitter at America Debate and on Facebook at Todd Graham America's Debate Coach. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Listeners, we are so excited for all of us to watch the debates and then 
Todd, you're going to come back, grade them with us. We can't wait and we will see you next time.